I invite you to open up a Bible to Isaiah chapter 2 as we continue our study in the book of Isaiah. If you're unfamiliar with Isaiah, you can open up a pew Bible and you'll find it on page 677, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 6. Just a reminder, our quarterly business meeting, for those of you who are church members, is uh, this Thursday at 7.30. So make sure you need to be there. Our last one was uh, canceled due to snow. And here in New England, who knows, this one could be canceled due to snow, even though it's April, but whatever. A plan is this Thursday, uh, April 1st at 7.30 is our quarterly business meeting. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 6 to 22. It says, You have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob. They are full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination like the Philistines and clasp hands with the pagans. Their land is full of silver and gold. There's no end to their treasures. Their land is full of horses. There's no end to their chariots. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. So man will be brought low and mankind humbled. Do not forgive them. Go into the rocks. Hide in the ground from the dread of the Lord and the splendor of His majesty. The eyes of the arrogant man will be humbled and the pride of men brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted, and they will be humbled. For all the cedars of Lebanon, tall and lofty, and all the oaks of Bashan, for all the towering mountains and all the high hills, for every lofty tower and every fortified wall, for every trading ship and every stately vessel, The arrogance of man will be brought low and the pride of man humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day and the idols will totally disappear. Men will flee to caves in the rocks and to holes in the ground from dread of the Lord and the splendor of His majesty when He rises to shake the earth. In that day, men will throw away to the rodents and bats their idols of silver and idols of gold which they made to worship. They will flee to caverns in the rocks and to the overhanging crags from the dread of the Lord and the splendor of His majesty when He rises to shake the earth. Stop trusting in man who has but a breath in his nostrils. On what account, of what account is he? Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we thank You that You alone are exalted, that You alone are great. As we sang this morning, You are exalted. Lord, forgive us for our pride. Forgive us for thinking that we are something. And I pray, Lord, that as we study this text, we might just see who You are. Lord, help us this morning to understand the splendor of Your majesty. Lord, I have this task of preaching about how great You are. And and that implies that, that I have some great words to say. But Lord, there's no words that can show how great You are. You alone can show Yourself. And so I pray, God, that by Your great and powerful Holy Spirit, You would use Your great word not my words, but your word, to show your greatness to our hearts. That we might have a a spiritual sense of how awesome and glorious you are. And that it might cause us to humble ourselves, to repent, and to trust in you. So Lord, help us this morning as we study this incredible text from Isaiah, which is just, it's so large and weighty. I, I just pray, God, that you would bring it home to us in only the way that you can do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So, uh, September 1st, 1715, King Louis XIV of France finally died. Uh, King Louis had ruled over France for 72 years. 
as I understand, making him the longest reigning monarch in uh, European history. Uh, under his uh, leadership and, and his throne, France grew to the heights of its power, uh, really not to be equaled again in, in human history. Uh, that was France's glory day. Um, King Louis XIV was known as Louis the Great. Maybe you know him from his furniture today. That's about all he's remembered for today. But uh, he, he was the great back then. In fact, he uh, often compared himself to the sun god, Apollo. And so he was known as the sun king. Uh, Louis the Great was uh, an incredible ruler. In fact, he had this saying, uh, you've probably heard it in English, in French, it's, see if I can get this right, uh, my apologies to anyone who speaks French, uh, l'état c'est moi, which means I am the state. And Louis ruled with absolute, total uh, control over the state of France. But on September 1st, 1715, Louis died. And at his uh, funeral in Notre Dame Cathedral, of course the masses were there and all the dignitaries were there and his coffin was there and there was a big candle, a single candle lit over his coffin and the uh, famous court preacher Jean-Baptiste Massillon was scheduled to give the sermon and he was a bishop and a court preacher and he got up to preach but before he started his sermon, I guess he didn't like the way that candle looked there on top of the, the coffin. So he went over and he snuffed it out. And then he got up to preach and he began his sermon with these famous words, Only God is great. Only God is great. We aren't. Only God is high and exalted. Only God is awesome. We, we're just dust animated by God's power. Only God is great. And somehow we just forget that. I forget that. You don't have to be Louis the Fourteenth to start thinking you're great. You just have to be a, a sinful human being. We start to think that we're great. We start to think that we're something. But only God is great. Beside Him, there is no other who is great. And that's the point of our text today. This is, I, I think that's the message. You want the one-word summary of this passage. I think it's only God is great. Look at our text, Isaiah chapter 2. Uh, Isaiah is trying to teach and remind the people of Israel that only God is great. He says in verse 6, You have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob. They are full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination like the Philistines and clasp hands with pagans. They, their land is full of silver and gold. There's no end to their treasures. Their land is full of horses. There's no end to their chariots. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. This is kind of an interesting passage because he starts out in verse 6 by saying that God has abandoned his people. And then he gives sort of a list of reasons why he's abandoned his people. And at first they seem sort of random. You know, there's like, well, you're doing the things that the pagan nations are doing and there's silver and gold and horses and... You know, you kind of look at this list and you're like, well, why are you abandoning your people for all these things? And I think the answer is down in verse 9. This is the summary. So man will be brought low and mankind humbled do not forgive them. And as we saw just by reading over this, the dominant theme in this text is pride. If you look down at verse 12, it says, The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty and for all that is exalted. Or look at verse 17. The arrogance of man will be brought low and the pride of men humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. So I think what you see in verses 6 through 8, if we can go back to that, is I think these are um, manifestations of pride or causes of pride. They're, they're, they're the way that the pride of the Israelites is 
sort of showing itself. And I think that's why Isaiah is ticking off these things. So look at verse 6 again. It says, they're full of superstitions from the east. Now, it literally says in Hebrew, they're full of the east. So I, I think what that means is that Israel began to think that human beings were great. They forgot that God was great, and they began to think that man was great. And so they would look around at the nations around them and say, oh, what are those Assyrians doing over there in the east? Oh, those Assyrians, wow, you know, they're pretty powerful. They have a powerful nation. Well, look, look how they worship. Look how they dress. Look, look at uh, the way they structure their society. Let's do what they do, because they're great, and we want to be great, just like the Assyrians. And so they started looking at the nations around them. They started uh, mimicking the ways of the people around them. You know, it's just peer pressure. You know, like when you're in high school, you see kids... Well, those are the cool kids. That's that group. I'm going to mimic them. I want to do what they do. Instead of saying only God is great, you start thinking that that, that circle of jocks and cool people are great or this group is great. And, and we take our eyes off of God's greatness and we start to think that people are great and we start to mimic them. We do it in business. We do it in magazines. Oh, that, that model looks great. I want to be like that. I want to dress like that. And we start to conform our lives to the world around us thinking that people are great. But people are not great. Only God is great. Or look at verse 7. It says their land is full of silver and gold. There's no end to their treasures. Israel was uh, prosperous at this time. They began to think that their prosperity made them great. That, uh, and again, prosperity is not wrong in and of itself. It's not wrong to have wealth. In fact, sometimes God blesses people with prosperity. But the problem with prosperity is it so easily tempts us into thinking, that we're something great. It just happens so naturally. You know, something happens when you trade in your old RAV4 and buy an H2. Okay? You start driving down the highway in that thing. It's just so subtle. It starts to happen. Something happens when you sell your old two-bedroom fixer-upper and finally move into a four-bedroom house in a nice neighborhood. It just changes the way you look at other people. And you start looking at other people in other houses like, oh, those hope those people don't move into my neighborhood. It's going to affect the property values. And, you know, we, we just start thinking differently about people. Something happens when you stop shopping at JCPenney and start shopping at Talbot's. It just affects the way, the way we think about others. Something happens when we move from a cubicle to an office or from an office to the corner office with the best view. You, you know, there's something about being on a certain floor in a building and it just gets to our heads so easily. Something happens when a church grows and grows and they add a service and we add extra ministries and we start thinking, well, we must be doing something right. I wonder what it is that we're doing right and those other churches just don't get. Huh. Well, maybe we should hold some seminars and have people come and pay money to find out what we're doing right so they can model their church after our church because there must be something special about our church. Like, no, no. Only God is great. There is no great church. There is no great human being. Only God is great. But we just forget that in times of prosperity. There was a time of prosperity in Israel. They'd forgotten about that. Or look at the next one. Not just prosperity, but power. It says, Their land is full of horses. There's no end to their chariots. Uh, now, in those days, of course, we're talking about military power. We could have, if you want to make that a modern translation, you could say the land is full of tanks. There's no end to their fighter jets or something. You know, horses and chariots were their weapons of warfare. And uh, military power, uh, strength makes us think that we're greater than we are. We have to be careful of that in our country. Uh, America has 
the, the greatest, not just the greatest army in the world, but the greatest army in all of human history, ever. And, you know, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I, I tend to be a little hawkish myself, and I like military and follow military things. But, uh, you know, you have to be careful, because when you have a great military, you start thinking, oh, yeah, we got the best military. Yeah, no one's going to mess with America. <laughs> you know? Look, people, the puniest angel in heaven could decimate all of America's army like that. God is great. We're not great. And we thank God for the blessings He's given to our nation, but we have to remember that only God is great and that our nation is not somehow better than other people. We have to humble ourselves before this great God, not let it go to our heads. And so whenever we get power, whenever you become a manager or a VP or a president or a CEO or a CFO or an elder in the church or a pastor, or even if you ever, ever attain the lofty heights of senior pastor... You have to be careful because you start thinking, yeah, look at me. Look at the nameplate on my door. Look what it says on my desk. Man, only God is great. You're just dust and ashes animated by His power. And if He wanted to withdraw His Spirit from you, you'd, just, you'd be dead. He is God. We are not. Only God is great. And we start to think that because we have letters behind our names, M-A, M-Div, Ph.D., Psy.D., M.D., D.D. We start getting all these letters behind our names. We start thinking, well, you know. Uh, no, it's not Mr. Rennie. It's Reverend Rennie. Thank you very much. Just wanted to clarify that for your records. Reverend Jeremy Rennie, not Mr. Rennie. That's okay. And, you know, we just start just get to our heads and we've got to remember God is great. We are not great. Even when we have power. And you see the movie The Passion? There's this incredible scene where Jesus is standing there next to Pilate. And Jesus, of course, just looks horrible. He's been scourged and all this, and he's barely holding himself up. And here's Pilate standing there in all his power. And he says to Jesus, I have the power to kill you or to release you. And Jesus, all torn up, you know, he just looks terrible, looks so weak. He looks at Pilate and he says, you have no power except what has been given you on high. We have to remember that, that any power we have, any prosperity we have is from God that He is the Great One. Or if you look at this last one in verse 8, it says, Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. What is the ultimate expression of pride, if not idolatry? To think that a human being can create or fashion a God. I mean, what is more arrogant than that? To think that I can make a supreme being with my hands? That I... I can take a piece of wood and carve an actual God out of it? I mean, this is the ultimate in human. It's so crazy. It's so prideful. It's almost lunacy to think that we could make a God. And today, of course, in our society, we don't actually make statues. We don't make wooden figurines and bow down to them. But we make things. We make up our own religion. We make up our own beliefs. You know, we pride ourselves today on, well, you know, I don't, I don't subscribe to any denomination. I don't subscribe to any particular system. I, I have my own beliefs, and I make up my own mind about what's true and what's not true. As if that's a good thing. <laughs> you know? Well, what about the Bible? We should be saying, I try to submit my mind to God's Word, and I pray for Him to shape my mind according to His Word. But instead, we pride ourselves in saying, well, I, I don't follow any particular system or any religion or any denomination. I, I sort of pick and choose because I'm the one who's going to determine what I believe. Like It's just as crazy as making a wooden statue to think that we can design religion. God is God. And we have to ask Him who He is. We can't tell Him who we think He is. 
because he alone is great. It's just idolatry. And it's just as crazy as making a statue and bowing down to it. And so we create things. We make churches. You know, look at this church. Look at uh, this business. Look at these abs, you know. And we, we point to the things that we think are... Not me, that's hypothetical, seriously. <laughs> I'm not going to show you. Um, <laughs> you know, look at what I've made. Look at what I've created. And, and we think that it's somehow great. But only God is great. And those things become idols. And we would even dethrone God and put our idols on the throne of heaven as if they were great. But they're just the work of human minds and human hands. And so, God has a response in verse 9. So man will be brought low and mankind humbled. Do not forgive them. Just as Jean-Baptiste Massillon reached out and snuffed out that candle... So God has determined that someday He is going to snuff out the candle of human pride. In fact, there's a day set. I don't know when the day is, but I know that we're one day closer to it than we were yesterday. And I know tomorrow we're going to be one day closer to it than we are today. That day is coming. It is set. You can put it on your calendar if you knew when it was. There is a day coming when God is going to set the record straight. When God is going to extinguish our pride and set humanity low before Him so that He alone is exalted. We call it the Judgment Day, the Second Coming, the Parousia of Christ. It has a lot of names. But it's the day that God has set when He's not going to put up with it anymore. When God is no longer going to allow His world to be hijacked by rebellious humans. What is more ridiculous than that? And God's not going to put up with that forever. And so, in verse 12, the Lord Almighty has a day. He has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted, and they will be humbled. God has a day. It's set. I don't know when it is. It's coming. Human history has a terminal point toward which we are moving. And it's coming. It's His day. Look at verse 13. It's a day for all the cedars of Lebanon, tall and lofty, and all the oaks of Bashan, for all the towering mountains and all the high hills. Here I think the prophet is using uh, nature as kind of an image for human pride and arrogance. It's sort of a symbol. You know, when I read those verses, the, the picture I had in my mind, anyone remember Mount St. Helens when it blew? We're starting to date ourselves here. I, I remember uh, Mount St. Helens and those pictures, this big mountain, and suddenly the top is blown off it. And what I remember was the pictures of all the trees around it. They were all blown down outward from the, the mountain. And so it looked like, some, like a big shock wave just went, whoa, and every tree was falling down like that, moving away from the mountain. And, you know, what a picture of God's power when He finally comes and when God plants His foot on the earth. And suddenly, whoa, everything that's raised up against Him will be laid low. Or look at verse 15. It says, For every lofty tower... And every fortified wall, for every trading ship and every stately vessel. Now the imagery moves from creation to things that human beings have made to raise themselves up. Things that we point to that we think are great. The picture I had in my mind when I was reading this was when our troops went into Baghdad. Do you remember when they got in the center of Baghdad and all the Iraqis just came pouring out of their houses? And they came to that big statue of Saddam. Remember that? And they're trying to tear that down. And they have sledgehammers. I just, for some reason, I remember this one Iraqi. They keep showing him on TV. He's this huge dude. He's like in a tank top. And he had a sledgehammer. He's just whacking away at that statue. Finally, they got some chains hooked over the statue. 
and they hooked it up. I think up to one of our trucks, and they, they pulled it down. And then I remember this other scene of, uh, I don't know if you remember this, I think somehow they broke the head off the statue, and they're like dragging it through the streets, and there's this one guy riding it, and then people would come up with the, you know, the shoe thing, you know, they, they're into the shoe thing there, they, and they come up and they whack it with the shoe, and that's the way they show disrespect. You know, I, like what a picture of what God is going to do someday, when He's going to tear down all the stuff that we've raised up and said, oh yeah, look at this, here's statues to ourselves, here's what we've built in memorial to ourselves, and God's just going to rip it all down. It's going to be drugged through the streets. Nothing that we think is great is going to be able to stand before the greatness of God. It says in verse 17, the arrogance of man will be brought low and the pride of men humble. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The Lord alone will be exalted. Only God is great. And the idols will totally disappear. What's also in this passage that I think is really startling is that it not only tells us that there is a day set when God is coming, that human history has a terminal point when Christ will return, but this passage also tells us how God is going to humble the world. It's rather terrifying. He shows us the means by which God is going to humble the world. How is God going to humble human pride? I mean, I know He can knock over towers and, and statues and trees and all that, like you said here, but you know, how is He going to humble human hearts? Because our hearts are pretty prideful. Our hearts are pretty self-confident. How is He going to humble all those things? And the answer we find in this passage is He's just going to have to show up. That's all. He just has to appear and the case is closed. He is so awesome and holy and beautiful that just His presence, His appearing, will send us to the ground. Look at verse 10. Go into the rocks. Hide in the ground from the dread of the Lord. And then get this phrase. And the splendor of His majesty. Now don't chew that phrase and swallow it. Just suck on it a little bit like hard candy. Just let it sit in your mouth. Just think about that. The splendor of His majesty. I mean, what an incredible phrase that is. It occurs three times in this passage. And as you all know, good Bible interpreters, that if something is repeated in a Bible passage, that's usually part of the main point, and you should focus on that. And so uh, notice that it occurs again in verse 19 and verse 21. In fact, if you have a pencil, underline that phrase, the splendor of His majesty. Even if you're holding a pew Bible, you know, underline it. I don't care. Just... Someday someone will open it up and they'll look at that and it will jump out at them too. Underline the splendor of His majesty. Or look at verse 19. It says, Men will flee to caves in the rocks and to holes in the ground from the dread of the Lord and the splendor of His majesty. Underline that. Verse 21. They will flee to caverns in the rocks and to overhanging crags from the dread of the Lord and the splendor of His majesty when He rises to shake the earth. God's just going to have to show up. He's not going to have to do anything. He's just going to have to appear in His beauty, His brilliance, His magnificence, His eminence, His greatness is going to be so huge and obvious that people will just instinctively know that only God is great. Not a word will have to be said. Not an argument will have to be made. We'll just see Him and go, You are great. You alone are great. There is none beside you. I am nothing. You alone are God. Because He's so awesome and holy. Can you imagine a being who is so beautiful that He terrifies you? 
Can you imagine beauty so intense that, that it would want to make you crawl underneath your pew because he's so awesome? I, I have a hard time imagining that. That's how God's going to do it. There's not going to be any question who's great on that day. You know, it's like going outside with a flashlight at full moon in the summer. I mean, do you even have to question which is greater, the sun or the flashlight? You can't even see the flashlight. That's how God is going to be. It, it's like if a little kid, three-year-old with a kazoo played Twinkle Twinkle Little Star and immediately afterwards the curtains opened and the Boston Pops played the 1812 Overture with, with fireworks and cannons. You know, which is great? It, you don't even have to ask the question. God is great. And on that day He will show His greatness and His majesty and there's not going to be anything to say. In fact, rather than saying anything, notice the response that human beings make. Look at verse 10. Go into the rocks, hide in the ground from the dread of the Lord and the splendor of His majesty. So when God appears, the natural human instinct is to dig a foxhole, to hide in it and then cover yourself with the dirt. That's what our instinct is when God shows up. Uh, and notice, this is interesting, notice that that phrase, the splendor of His majesty, appears three times. And every time it appears, the response is exactly the same. People go digging into the ground. Verse 19, it says, Men will flee to caves in the rocks and to holes in the ground from the dread of the Lord and the splendor of His majesty. Verse 20, In that day men will throw away to the rodents and bats their idols of silver and idols of gold which they made to worship. They will flee to the caverns in the rocks to the overhanging crags from the dread of the Lord and the splendor of His majesty. The instinct when people see God is to just dive for cover, hit the deck, dig a hole, find a cave, bury oneself because He's just so awesome and magnificent in His glory and majesty. It's, it's incredible. I was trying to think of an illustration that would, that would illustrate this. And this is as close as I can come with. It's not very good. But it's kind of like we're all on the beach making sandcastles. That's what it's like. Every one of us is making our little sandcastles, you know. I make sandcastles with my kids at the beach, and you go decorate them with, you know, seaweed and shells, and you go find some junk that washed up on the beach and use that. And, and we're like walking around bragging to each other about our sandcastles. Oh, yeah, see my sandcastle? What do you think? That's pretty good. It's a nice moat. You know, my, my sandcastle has two moats. Oh, wow. Yeah, oh, look at his. Oh, he's got two moats, an inner keep and an outer keep. Wow. That's pretty good. Oh, I like the way you use that kelp. Maybe we should use kelp like that. You know, and we're bragging about ourselves like, like we're something great. Like we have something awesome. We brag about our awards and our prizes and our positions. But unbeknownst to us, out at sea is a tsunami that's coming toward us. We can't see it yet. But imagine, you know, some seismic earthquake. You know how these tsunamis start. And they generate these waves. And tsunamis can be, you know, 100 feet high. They can travel, I think, to like 300 miles an hour. They're incredibly fast and powerful. Imagine the seismic tsunami, 100 feet high, 300 miles an hour, just cruising toward the land. And we don't see it yet. Because we're like, oh, yeah, look at what I am. Look what I did. And, and suddenly we all look up and we're like, <gasps> you know, what, are we going to stand before God's majesty on that day and suddenly go, well, you know, God, yeah, yeah, you're great. Yeah, that tsunami is pretty awesome. But look at the sandcastle, you know. What are we going to do? It's just going to be like, ah! You know, we're going to dive for holes. We're going to grab our little sand shovel and start digging a hole. You know, and, and are we going to be able to hide from it? No! 
You can't escape God's wrath. We can't escape God's glory. It's just going to come like that tidal wave upon us in all of our greatness and all of our pride, everything that we think is so awesome that we brag about to each other, that we brag about before God, it's just going to get like wiped out. And there'll be nothing left to stand before Him. We'll dive. We'll dive into the dirt. I mean, that's what happens when God shows up. People hit the deck. In fact, look at your sermon notes for a minute. Open up your sermon notes. I just want to show you some passages real quick before we go to communion here. What I did was I just kind of went through the Bible and picked out some different texts in which God shows up. And I just want you to see, sometimes He shows up literally, sometimes it's a vision, but I want you to see the responses that people have to God's presence. Look at the inside of the sermon notes on page 2. Here's Adam and Eve. Go back to the beginning. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid. This is after they sinned. They hid from the Lord. Or Israel, when God shows up on Mount Sinai to give the Ten Commandments. Remember that story? Look, at, uh, look what happens with Israel. It says, When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we'll listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. We don't even want to hear His voice. It's so terrifying. It'll just kill us. God speaks, we die. No, you speak, Moses. Isaiah, uh, he sees God. What does he cry? Woe to me, I am ruined. Look over at the next page. The prophet Ezekiel, he had a vision of God's uh, glory. It says, This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down. Or Daniel, another prophet of God. He says, I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. The men with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they hid, fled and hid themselves. So, so Daniel has a vision. The guys around them don't even know what's going on. They just know they're scared to death and they run. And all these guys, as Daniel's having the vision, they're like scurrying and running around. Daniel says, So I was left alone, gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale. I was helpless. Or Paul, uh, also known as Saul at that time. What did he do when Jesus appeared? fell to the ground. Or John, the Apostle John, at the beginning of the book of Revelation, he has a vision of Christ. What is his response? He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Just goes limp, wet, wet noodle on the ground. He can't even stand. He can't do anything. Or this final passage is a great one. This is actually in Revelation, but I think it's an allusion back to Isaiah. See what you think. This is uh, from uh, Revelation 6. It's talking about the judgment day. It's another vision of that terminal point in human history. It says, Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and free man hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Isn't that a funny phrase? The wrath of the Lamb? The Lamb is Jesus. And here's the Lamb coming in wrath. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Who can stand? When that tsunami of God's wrath comes, who is going to be able to stand on the beach and just take it? What sandcastle are we going to hide behind? 
What are we going to be able to say to God to protect ourselves? There's nothing we can say. Am I really going to stand before God and say, well, you know, God, I'm not really sure if you exist or not. I, I've had my doubts. And besides God, I'm, I'm a pretty good person, you know. Uh, I, uh, I served on the PTO at my kid's school for three years, at once as the treasurer. Um, and uh, when we cleaned out our basement, I gave our extra stuff to the uh, Veterans Association. So, you know, God, I'm not that bad of a person. Oh, I was, I was christened as an infant, and I went and heard that pastor at that Baptist church and sat through a couple of his sermons. I mean, that's good enough, don't you think, to endure that. And so, God, you know, um, uh, well, are we going to stand before God and list off our human pride, our petty little religiosity and good deeds? Can anyone stand before Him? Who can stand against this God? Nobody can stand against Him because only God is great. Actually, let me reverse that. There is one who can stand against Him. There's only one who's ever stood against the wrath of God, who stood against that tsunami, and when the water recited, receded, He was still standing. The Lord Jesus Christ is the only one who has ever endured the wrath of God and still stood. When He was on that cross, the wrath of God was being poured out on Him. We're going to talk about this a little bit more next week. But the judgment of God was being poured out and He was raised on the third day. He came up out of the, the waters of judgment and He was still there. Only Jesus Christ can stand. And so if we are going to have any hope of standing on that day, the only hope we have is to be in Jesus Period. You have to have Christ. Without Christ, you're just done and I'm done. We can never, there's nothing we have to bring to God and say, look at me, look at this, look what I did. I'm a nice person, I'm a religious person. Only Christ can save us on that day. You can go to heaven without a house. You can go to heaven without money. You can go to heaven without a spouse. You can go to heaven without an arm. You can go to heaven without a leg. You can go to heaven without your faculties in place. You can go to heaven without friends. You can go to heaven without a, a job title. But you can't go to heaven without Christ. It's only in Christ that we have any hope of standing. And so we have to come to Jesus today. Yes, He's coming again someday in judgment, but today He stands with us as a Savior in love. And He says, Come to Me. Have pity on yourselves. Come to Christ. Get rid of those idols. All that stuff that I'm clinging to that I think is so great. You know, I gotta just throw it, get rid of it, and come to Jesus and say, Jesus, you alone are the Savior. Forgive me, have mercy on me. You alone are the Savior. And let Christ be my righteousness. Let Christ be my forgiveness. There's only hope in Christ. I don't know what you're clinging to this morning. I don't know what kind of driftwood or life preserver you think is going to save you from that tidal wave that's coming. But I just would plead with you, for your own sake, throw it off. Toss it. Get rid of it and grab onto the cross. It's only behind the cross that there is refuge. It's only through the cross of Christ that there is forgiveness and hope. Have you clung to Christ as your own Savior and Lord? Have you, have you grabbed onto Him? Grab, just sunk your fingers into that wood and grabbed onto Christ saying, Jesus, save me. Has Christ become your life? Anything short of that is certain destruction. Christ alone can save and so we celebrate communion. I mean, it's so awesome. We're not just having some symbolic meal. This is like us hiding behind the cross and grabbing onto it. So as we come to the cross, let's just pray as we come to communion, shall we? Lord Jesus, 
we just praise you because you have come. You've stood on the beach of this world. The tsunami of God's, the Father's wrath was poured out against you for our sins. And when the water resided, you were still standing. And we thank you that you are a perfect Savior for sinners like me. That even though, Lord, we can never stand before you, that even though we are full of pride and arrogance and self-righteousness, we're always justifying ourselves and explaining our behavior and giving excuses. Lord, we are sinful before you. But I thank you, God, that Jesus came to save us. That Jesus can rescue the worst of us. That no matter who we are, no matter what kind of foul things we've done with our lives, that Jesus' blood is enough to save us. That one drop of Jesus' blood will save us from the whole tidal wave of, of God's wrath. And so, Lord, I pray for anyone here who does not have Christ, that, that sometime today they would just see His beauty, that they would see the splendor of Your majesty, not in judgment, but on the cross, saving and forgiving, and that they would just cling to You. Lord, I don't know here who knows You and who doesn't, but God, I just pray that, we, that for myself too, that we wouldn't leave without clinging to Jesus, without saying to Him, Lord, forgive me and save me. And now, Lord, as we come to communion, we just pray, show us the beauty of the cross again. Show us the glory of Jesus Christ as we partake of these elements. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As we come to the communion table, we come to celebrate what Jesus did for us on the cross. Uh, this table is a picture. It's a, it's a symbol of Jesus' death for us. The bread is a symbol of His body which was broken. The cup is a symbol of His blood which was shed. If I could have the elders join me here at the communion table. This communion table is open to anyone here this morning who knows Jesus as Savior and Lord. If Christ is in your heart, if you have clung to the cross for your salvation and to the cross alone, then you're welcome to this table. Even if you're not a Baptist. This isn't the Baptist table, it's the Lord's table. Um, if you're not yet at that place in your life where you have Christ in your life and you're still thinking about it, still praying about it, I, just when the plates come by, just pass them on down. No one's going to look at you funny. But the whole point of this, this uh, symbol is for us to say that we cling to Christ as our Savior. And we wouldn't want you to do a symbol that wasn't true for you uh, yet. We want you to come to Christ, though. And so we remember that the night before Jesus went to the cross, He took some of that matzah bread, the unleavened bread that they eat at the Passover meal, and he gave it a new symbolic meaning. He broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And uh, Tim, would you give thanks for the broken body of Christ? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Your body broken for us means that we can come into your presence. Be with God because of your sacrifice. Lord, we are eternally grateful for that sacrifice you made for us. As the elders bring this, bring these elements around, I would invite you just to take time to pray, to, to thank God for what He's done, to uh, confess sin in your life, to humble yourself before God, to worship Him to spend time with God telling Him how great He is for what He's done for us on the cross. So just spend this time in prayer.
for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. These are they who have come out of the great judgment. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Christ was broken so that we could be made whole. Let us eat together. And then we remember at the end of the meal, Jesus took a cup of wine and He gave it a new meaning as well. He said, This cup is the new covenant in My blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Could the elders join us again? And John Gennard, would you give thanks for the shed blood of Christ? Let us pray. God, help us to take the focus off of ourselves and our sandcastles. Lord, as we come to uh, receive your cup today, as we come to your table, help us to focus on you. What a tremendous gift you gave us and your son. Lord, we thank you for his sacrifice. Lord, help us to focus on your Son and his gift and his sacrifice. We pray this in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's sing together of our salvation in Christ. I'm forgiven because you are forsaken. I'm accepted. You are condemned. I'm alive and well. Your spirit is within me.
sins just stretch out before us, our failures, our mistakes, the bad things we've done, the things we've said to people. But now hear the word from Romans. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let us drink together. Now, just stand. After the service, we have uh, a prayer team here. Kevin and Lori Aker, our elders are here. And if we can pray for you about anything, maybe you want to give your life to Christ. You want to make sure that you belong to Him. Come on up after the service and just say, Hey, my name is so-and-so. Could you pray for this? And we'll pray with you in confidence about whatever it is. And we also have Sunday school downstairs after the service. Hope you come down and take advantage of that. And now, Lord, I just pray that we might stand in Christ. Even as we stand before you now, we thank you that on that judgment day, when that great tidal wave of wrath comes, that we will stand, not because of who we are, but because we are in Christ. Lord, he is our salvation. He is our hope. So fill us today with Christ. And as we go out of these doors and wherever we go, people need to see Jesus. People need to see what a, this beautiful Savior we've been thinking and singing about. And so, Lord, I just pray, communicate him through our lives. Communicate Him through the way we treat people. Communicate Him through the words we speak. Uh, Lord, give us just one chance this week to show one person the love of Christ that maybe a seed might be planted and someone might come to know You. Lord, this is Your army of redeemed saints. Send them forward to do Your work. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.